Okay, it was a couple years ago that my younger son, Logan, uh, suddenly started screaming uh, in a panic. I was upstairs at the time and I couldn't quite make out what he was saying or what he was screaming about. Uh, but I could tell there was panic in his voice. So I got up from where I was and moved closer to the source of the mania and uh, uh, picked up this much of, of what he said. I, I arrived just at the time where I could hear him say, well, it's not going to be my fault if the dogs are dead. That's what he said. So I go downstairs to, I want to investigate the matter. And it seems the dogs, we have two of them, a big one and a small one, uh, each are taking their turn picking at a wrapper that was on the floor, a wrapper. What kind of wrapper, you might ask? It's a wrapper to something edible, which was made of chocolate, okay? Now, you see, um, we've told the kids, and they certainly know this by now, that uh, don't ever give the dogs chocolate. Yes, as a parent, you have to tell your kids these kinds of things. Um, uh, you tell your kids uh, things that you don't have to tell normal humans. Well, you got to cover all the bases, you got to cover all the bases with, you know, why don't you want to give your, your dogs chocolate? Well, it's dark chocolate in particular that's, that's it's harmful to dogs. But again, you don't want them to have to try and decipher in the moment, is this dark chocolate? Is this milk chocolate? So you just say chocolate. Just don't give them chocolate. Any kind of chocolate across the board. No chocolate for dogs, okay? We had another experience not too long ago that involved grapes, okay? Apparently, grapes are very harmful for dogs too. Did you know this? Did y'all know this? I didn't know this. I had no idea. Uh, so my kids got in the habit of accidentally giving the dogs uh, food. And then after the fact, this was their routine. Alexa, are crackers harmful for dogs? Oh, crackers are fine for dogs <laughs> or, or something along those lines. Well, again, they accidentally got a grape. Alexa, are grapes harmful for dogs? Yes, it's very harmful, et cetera. Et cetera. And then we went into a panic. We're like, oh no, how many grapes did the dog get? And it was quite the scene. But anyway, back to the chocolate. My son Logan was upset that the dogs were picking at the chocolate wrapper. Both my boys love the dog so much. We love the dog so much. And so the thought of them being harmed in any way was just a terrible thought for, for either of them. So when Logan saw the dogs picking apart the chocolate wrapper, he was convinced that we had a, a couple of dead dogs walking on our hands, okay? So, so what do you suppose in his agitated state, his primary question was in this instance, what do you suppose he wanted to know in that moment? Who did it? <laughs> Who done it, right? Who did this? Who's responsible for this? And yes, perhaps to a lesser extent, how, right? How did this happen? His primary concern was who was the offender? Who was responsible for putting the dogs in harm's way? So it's not to leave you in suspense. Uh, it was the wrapper to milk chocolate truffle, to a milk chocolate truffle. Um, so uh, uh, the dogs were safe in that regard. And I happen to know for a fact that the wrapper was empty by the time the dogs got it. Don't ask me how I know that. <laughs> Who did this? Who did this? He was insistent on knowing who the guilty party was, and I suppose I shouldn't be surprised because this is often the same question that we, we ask of them. They come into the house with muddy shoes. We say, who did this? Who's responsible for this, right? Uh, who did this? We find their clothes or shoes in random places throughout the house. So who left their shoes here? Whose are these, right? It's a persistent theme in our house where we're not so much concerned about how it happened, right? We have a good idea how it happened. We're more interested on who is responsible for the action. It's a question of who, not how, okay? And if there's one central idea I'd like to put into your head at the onset of our, our discussion today, it's that. What's the main point? I'm, I'm going to give it away right at the start of our time. The, the thing that, should be, that we should be most preoccupied with is the who in this instance, not necessarily the how, 
We first need to mostly and mostly understand the who of the question. Okay, so what are we talking about today? We're doing a study called Why Do We Believe What We Believe? And in that study, we're examining the many different things that Christians confess and, and trying to establish a biblical basis for what we believe. And we often know the what, right? We often know the what, but sometimes we have some difficulty explaining why the why behind what we believe. So today we're going to talk about creation. Many of us uh, who grew up in the church, you know, according to the opening lines of Genesis, uh, know that the world and everything in it was created in six days, six days in a rest, right? Six days in a rest. And uh, now, even if you didn't grow up in the church, you might have heard, uh, heard about this at some point. And even to the non-believer, there are many what we call defeater doctrines. And this could be considered one of them. It's a belief that uh, you know, what your religion confesses, and, and, and if they actually believe that sort of thing, then I'm out. They call that a defeater doctrine. This is considered one of the defeater doctrines. I know enough about science, people will say. I know enough about science to know that there's no way, there's no way that the earth and everything in it came about in six days, okay? It's a, it's a false dilemma, science or faith, you got to choose one. Uh, so we're going to examine this a bit today, but once again, let me tell you where we're going to end up. Much like my son and the dogs with a chocolate wrapper, our main takeaway is going to be the who, not the how. Okay, the who, not the how. Uh, having said that, we will discuss a little bit of, of the, the how as much as the, the word itself gives us. But, but even if we don't, I want you to understand this too, even if we don't agree on the how, which again, oh, we got someone coming in. Here we go. <laughs> Admit. There we go. So even if we, even if we don't uh, agree on the how, of creation, we must agree on the who, okay? If we can do that, that's the essential thing that we have to agree on, that we must agree upon. And thank you for alerting me. Anytime you see that, give me the, yeah, give me the clap, clap. I like that. Uh, and I'll explain that more as we try and unfold the mystery of, of, of creation. But like I said, to start our conversation, let's discuss a little bit of the how. Uh, how did he do it? And let's review the question that I asked uh, and posed to you in email. Uh, and imagine you, you have a non-believing friend. Imagine you have a non-believing friend and, and uh, that friend challenges you on your belief, on the premise that's set up for us in the Bible, that the earth and everything in it, the animals, the plants, the mountains, uh, the oceans, humanity, all of it was created in six days. Science books tell us that the earth is billions and billions of years old. And at least to me, this, this lies in, in somewhat of a conflict here of what's understood in historical Christianity. And, and the idea, believe it or not, the, this idea is, is only a recent controversy, uh, you know, recent, relatively speaking. This, this wasn't a topic that the church struggled with uh, even a few hundred years ago, okay? For, for much of our church history, creation has been a topic that most all Christians could agree upon. The Bible says that God created the earth and all that's in it in six days, rested on the seventh, and by and large, for at least the first 1,500 years of, of, of Christian church history, we all agreed on the notion that God created the earth in six days or 144 hours, give or take a few right? But then fast forward a few hundred years in, in countless scientific developments, and the, <clears throat> excuse me, and the creation account in the Bible is now, now fiercely challenged. Up to, to just a few hundred years ago, it had been widely interpreted from scripture that, that the world is perhaps just 6,000 years old, six to 7,000 years old. Biblical scholars would use the genealogical accounts in, in Genesis, Genesis and then try and backdate it from there. And uh, they figure, well, if I go, we go all the way back to Adam and Eve and we allow so many years for each person, uh, that tells us the world is about six to 7,000 years old. And there's even some Bibles out there, you know, some older Bibles that are, that when you open up the first pages of Genesis, it tells you, you know, uh, 6,500 BC or something like that. It, it starts right, uh, right with that notion. 
Then there were these scientific advancements, one in particular, one in particular, which is called astrophysical dating, astrophysical dating. Here we go. I'm sorry, I'm going to take my picture away. Kyle, I know that's going to be disappointing for you. So <laughs> astrophysical dating, uh, this presented a challenge to the creation account far greater, arguably, than anything before. Why? Because here's how it works. This is really interesting to me. I really geek out on this kind of stuff. I think it's really fascinating. Here's how it works. Astrophysical dating is based on the law that light travels, light travels at 186,000 miles per second. 186,000 miles per second. To get an idea how, how fast that is, if you were going that fast, we could circle the earth about seven and a half times in one second. That's how fast 186,000 miles per second is. Um, so given that, aside from the sun, aside from the sun, which is 93 million miles away, just try and wrap your head around that. Our main source of light and heat is 93 million miles away, right? The next closest star to the planet Earth is 4.5 light years away. 4.5 light years away. What that means is light generated from that star at 186,000 miles per second will take four and a half years to reach the planet Earth, all right? That's the closest one. That's the closest one in our solar system and in our galaxy. And we're told that there are thousands and thousands and billions and trillions of stars out there and that we're receiving light today, not just from one star, but from, from, from light that or, uh, originated millions of years ago based on the distance that it's away. So, so people start theorizing. If it takes millions and millions of years for these light origins to reach our planet, what does that tell us? It tells us that the Earth has to be well over 6,000 years old or 7,000 years old. Even if there's some sort of, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, mix-up in, in the dating methods, it, it, it can't be to the extent that they're a million years off, two million years, a billion years off, right? The, the point is, is that based on astrophysical dating, people are saying the world, the Earth, has to be older than thousands of years old. It has to be minimally millions, even billions of years old based on this, this rationale alone, okay? And so then people start scratching their heads. And, uh, and how can we know? How can we know? Because again, there's undoubtedly all sorts of variables that we don't know anything about. Does light behave differently that far out? Is it slower or faster? How do we know? But again, even if their methods are off, you know, it's, it's so much to account for. It's so much to account for. And so you have someone who says, you know, no way, I'm out. I can't, if you're going to say it's 6,000 years old, I'm out. I believe in science. I believe in science, right? So what we want to do today, we want to start with that simple question. You, know, you, people of faith, people of faith, presumably all who believe that Scripture is the inerrant, infallible Word of God, and, and how do we reconcile this in our own mind or to our friends or to coworkers or family? Literally, this is a make or break issue for a lot of people. I can't believe in a religion that requires me to believe that the earth is only 6,000 years old when, when science tells me clearly otherwise. So in light of that, I have to categorically reject the Bible and everything in it. Okay, now at the risk of having you, some of you uh, point out some of my points before I get there, let me ask you, what do you say? How do you answer those people who might say, I can't buy it? The earth is only 6,000 years old or, or created in six days? I can't buy it. What might you say? And if, if folks online, if you have a, uh, a, um, an answer, you can certainly let us know by way of the chat. What do you think? Someone tells you, I can't buy it. What? 
<laughs> okay. All right. I guess we disagree. Let's agree to disagree. <laughs> anyone? Has anyone ever asked you this? Have you ever struggled with this in your own mind? Of course. Of course I have. I have too. But I have the answers now. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Oh, someone wants to be admitted. Thank you. Good to have you join us. Thank you. All right, we're dealing with the question of how do we answer the question, is the earth, according to your Bible, really only 6,000 years old? Is it really created in six days? Is that, oh, here we go. Here, we have an answer from the Weber. Uh, God's thoughts and ways are different than ours. Who says his timeline matches our timeline? What an excellent answer. Is that a good response? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, how about this? Uh, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years. A thousand years is like one day, Second Peter 3, 8. Or how about this? Uh, for a thousand years in your sight are, are but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night, Psalm 90, verse 4. Let me, let me get to where we're going by way of this question. All right, we're going we're to go a little bit circuitous here, but we're, we're going to get there, I promise you. All right? Are we to believe in the third chapter of Genesis when we first meet the serpent, that Adam and Eve actually encountered a talking serpent. This is going to get uncomfortable for some of you, I'm sure, okay? That Adam and Eve actually encountered a talking serpent, or is it possible that maybe the Bible is speaking uh, in metaphor or symbolically? Do we read that literally? Do we read that literally? Before you answer that, before you start throwing things at me, right, let me ask you this. How about when the Bible speaks of Moses dividing the Red Sea? or so the Israelites could walk across on dry land? Or are we to believe that actually happened, or was it some sort of symbolic parting of the Red Sea? Do we read that account literally? Before you answer that, before you answer that, how about in the New Testament, are we really to believe that Jesus walked on water? Or, or maybe that too is some sort of symbolic description of sorts. Are we to read that account literally, right? Okay, so if we believe that those accounts took place, if we believe those things actually took place in the Bible, miraculous events, is it a stretch to believe that God could somehow miraculously create the earth in six days and 6,000 years ago? Do we read that account literally? All right. Well, maybe, maybe, but I know some of you aren't going to be comfortable with that answer alone. All right. So we're going to dig into a few more here. Uh, let me ask you this question another way, another roundabout sort of way. We'll get to where we're going. There's an account in the Bible, in the book of Joshua, where a woman named Rahab tells a lie to protect the spies who were sent from Joshua. So Rahab told a lie to protect them. Okay. Rahab is mentioned in Hebrews, in the, in the infamous Hebrews Hall of Faith, as a person of faith. And as in this case, then that must mean it's okay for you and me to lie, right? Since Rahab lied, it's okay for me to lie too, right? I mean, she's, she's in the Bible and she's lying, right? So God's cool with it. Is that how that works? No. No, you know that's not how that works. Here's where I'm going with this. And if I continue to go down this road, I may have answers, but they're answers that have been formulated through some sloppy biblical interpretation. We have to apply some rules of biblical interpretation here if we're going to have any understanding of, of what in the world is going on in terms of uh, six days, 144 hours, uh, or, 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 um, or 6,000 years ago, okay? Here's what I mean by that. When we, when we read about this account of Rahab in the book of, of Joshua, okay, what we are reading here is we're reading an account uh, that we call historical narrative, all right? It's an account of a story. It's a story. 
Uh, Rahab tells a lie. It's something she did. She's, she's a flawed human being. She's sinful, and, and uh, uh, she's a sinful person, and yes, she told a lie. It's a historical narrative which details the events as they happened. All right? That portion of Scripture is not, for instance, the same as law. Law, right? Like in Exodus 20, where we receive the Ten Commandments, where we are specifically being told to do something, like keep the Sabbath holy, or honor your father and mother. You read that differently, you read the law differently than you would read historical narrative. Okay? For instance, when I read about Rahab, I'm not being told to act as Rahab acted. I'm reading historical narrative that contains spots and all. Rahab's behavior, spots and all. The, the, the Bible is not about a, a collection of, of, uh, of heroes, of, of upright people. The Bible is a collection of flawed people, of sinful people who God used in spite of the fact that they were sinful, flawed people. The hero of the Bible is Jesus, okay? And so when we read, for instance, the law, now we're seeing a reflection of God his character himself. So when we're told you must do this, do this, don't do that. Now we're receiving a lot. We read that differently than we read historical narrative. Okay. So you interpret historical narrative differently than you would interpret, say, poetry or wisdom literature. You interpret poetry differently than you would interpret one of Paul's epistles and Paul's letter differently than you would interpret books of, of prophecy or apocalyptic literature. You take them and read them and consider them for what they are. Okay. Do you, do you take these books, different books of the Bible, literally? Do we interpret Genesis and the opening account of creation literally? What's your answer? What do you think? Don't be afraid to say yes. Yes, we interpret it literally. Okay? We interpret it literally. We interpret it according to the manner in which it's written. Okay? In other words, a verb is always a verb. A noun is always a noun. Uh, poetry is poetry. Historical narrative is historical narrative. And you always want to ask yourself, what is, it the author, what is it the author is trying to communicate here? What's he trying to communicate? You have to consider this so you don't just try and read into the text whatever you want. All right? You have to consider what's the original intent. What was the author trying to say when he spoke to the original audience? But you have to understand this. All of it. All of it you read literally. All of it you read but you interpret it according to the type of literature that it is. Okay? We're going to get into this a little bit more here. So hopefully it clears it up a little bit. Uh, let me give you another example. In Judges 4, uh, we have an account that's written in a historical narrative style. Okay? So we take the words at face value. We don't assume the writer is speaking symbolically when we're reading historical narrative. It's an account of the Israelites fighting against the Syrians and, the, and General Sisera and how they defeated them. We read this account of how Sisera died. We read that Jael, the wife of Heber, drove a tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was asleep. Okay? Now, just so we're clear, this is historical narrative. This is not a metaphor. She drove a tent peg into his head until it hit the ground. That's in Judges chapter 4. Okay? Again, not a metaphor. But then in Judges chapter 5, guess what? What do we have there? We have a song about this very account this very account in Judges uh, chapter 5, verse 20. It says this, Judges 5, 20, says, From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. Now, do we read that and say, oh my goodness, the stars literally fell out of the sky and they started engaging in hand-to-hand -hand combat with, with Sisera. Do we say that? 
No. Why do we say that? Why do we say, why do we know that the stars didn't literally fall out of the heaven and start throwing punches to Cicero? Why do we know that? What is this? What kind of literature is this? What do you think? What'd you say? Put the list back up. Put the list back up. Okay. It's poetry. It's, or it's a song. You know, again, this was a song. All right. Uh, it's, it's, uh, there's symbolism in song. There's imagery in song and poetry. It isn't meant to be taken literally in the same way that you'd literally read historical narrative. Okay? All right? With me so far? So far so good? Understand? Okay. Uh, anyone online have any questions or anything like that? Just let me know. But this is where we're headed here. Whoop, there we go. Okay, so, so put that in your back pocket for a minute. Put all those things in your back pocket for a minute. We'll come back to that in a second. Let's actually start talking about the creation account as it reads in Genesis 1. And let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 if you happen to have those, or I'm, I'm going to put it up here. And rather than read the, the whole account, I'm going to read the first portion, the first 13 verses or so. And while I read them, while I read them, as I read them, I want you to be thinking of what it sounds like. Try and, and interpret or understand what, is it, what does it sound like you're hearing. Does it sound like historical narrative? Or does it sound like poetry? Or does it sound like something else? Okay, so here we go. This is uh, Genesis 1, 1 and following. We are going to literally read the beginning of the Bible, how it starts in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the earth. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the, the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let, let it separate the waters from the, the, the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And so God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry, earth, the, uh, dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit and tree, uh, excuse me, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which their seed according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which their seed according to its kind. Uh, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. Okay, so far, what do you think? What are you thinking? Does this sound like historical narrative? Does it sound like poetry? Does it sound like something else? What do you think? Oh, do I need to put it back up there? <laughs> it sounds like historical narrative to one, someone else? Anything else? Any other opinion? I'm not going to chastise you if I think you're wrong. <laughs> Is everyone pretty much in agreement? Historical narrative? Does it sound like historical narrative? You think so? Yeah. All right. Wisdom literature? Does it read like Proverbs? Does the book of Proverbs Does it sound like a proverb? It could, maybe. All right. Uh, we have all these different categories, right? Poetry, song. Is it, we know it's not an epistle. It's not a letter. It's not apocalyptic literature. You know, so we've probably got it narrowed down here. Probably either historical narrative, maybe, right? Perhaps poetry. 
Does, did, did anything sound poetic to you? All right. I'm going to walk you through three different positions, three different positions held in the church today as it pertains to the opening account of Genesis. All right. And all three of these positions are credible and, and have what's to be considered a high view of scripture. So again, you could hold on to any of these positions that I'm about to detail for you, and it would be considered a high view of scripture. And also, uh, uh, by our own denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America said, any of these views are fine because they all have a high view of scripture. All right. The first position, six 24 hour days, plain and simple, six 24 hour days, plain and simple. The earth was created by God in six days, regardless of what science or man has to say about it. Okay. This requires you to read the opening account in Genesis and read it as a historical narrative. Okay. Uh, and not really anything else. The Bible says six days. Therefore, I believe it was six days. And the person who holds this position might say, I can't explain it, but I have enough faith. I have enough faith in, in what the Bible says to believe that somehow, whether it was 6,000 years ago or a trillion years ago, okay, that God created the earth in six consecutive 24 hour days. End of story. I can't explain that. I can't explain the rest. Okay. With this belief to a certain extent, you have to say, I'm not sure to how to account for the time difference between what's written in the Bible uh, genealogically and the apparent age of the earth, right? God worked it out and it's not for me to worry about. You know, that's the position you can take. Where, where God has not opened his mouth, I will remain silent. I believe it was Calvin who said that, right? So that's, that's the first position you can take. That's the first view. That six 24-hour days, he did it, whether it was 6,000 years ago or somebody, I don't know. I only know what he told me and this is what he told me, okay? That's the first one. The second position, uh, it has to do with how we define the word day, okay, the word day. The, the interpretation of the Hebrew word yom or day in English, this idea has to do with the way the word day is used in the opening chapter of Genesis. The Hebrew word for day, yom, yes, it refers to a six 24-hour period, or excuse me, a 24-hour period, uh, the cycle of the sun coming up and, uh, in the morning and going down in the evening and starting all over again. However, as we use similarly in English, sometimes day can suggest something else. For instance, if I say back in my day, I used to wear bell bottoms. It's true. Uh, back in my day, pants were more fuller. Other day, you know, I can't tell you, the other, the other day I went to go buy pants and I discovered you don't just have to find your size, you have to find the fit too. You have to choose between skinny, slim, straight, and jumbo. And, and, and now I just used the word day a few times in that sentence. Did you see that? I, I described uh, back in my day and the other day I went to. Same word, different meaning, right? Uh, I'm referring to a period of time sometimes. I could be referring to possibly a number of years. Back in my day when pants were baggy, right? If I say back in King David's day, that could refer to the entire lifespan of King David, so we can apply that reason to Genesis 1 that each day doesn't necessarily refer to one single 24-hour period. So you can say that's what they mean by day in Genesis. All right. The problem you might encounter with this view is with a theory, is, is, again, it was the way the account reads. Each, each creation, each day of creation is punctuated with, and there was evening and there was morning. Okay, so if you're going to argue that the Hebrew word for yom is referring to a period of time rather than the calendar day, uh, that's not symbolism or metaphor. He's specifically detailing, you know, morning and evening, and then there was the next day, morning, evening. It, was, it seems to be that he's, he's trying to point to the fact, the author's trying to point to the fact that, hey, this is a 24-hour cycle, perhaps. Again, 
different use of the word day, but if you introduce elements of morning and evening, again, you still could make the argument it's symbolic. It's a symbolic day, an era. The sun set on a particular era of time. You know, you can argue, argue that reasoning. So by this understanding, you believe that we're reading a piece of literature that is historical narrative. We would still call it historical narrative. Perhaps you can say that it has a, a bit of poetical license to it that the author is using, right? But again, as in the case of Sisera, it's not unheard of. So, so that's, that's the second position. And it centers around the idea of how you might define and use the word day. All right. Now the third position, the third and final position here is called the framework view, called the framework view. This third concept centers on the idea that Genesis is written in a peculiar manner. Okay. Sometimes by way of historical narrative, we've already seen, it's the detailing of a story. First this happened and then that happened. Then we went here and went there. That's a historical narrative. Other times in the Bible, we have poetry, like in the Psalms or Song of Solomon, and, and there are usually strong indicators that we're reading poetry because you see a metaphor, you see metaphorical language. For instance, let me give you a good another example of this. In uh, Psalm 20, Proverbs 27, 19, it says this. As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects man. If we had a doctor in here, oh, I, I thought we were going to have one tonight, uh, uh, who has performed open heart surgery, and, and I were to ask him, hey, uh, or her, last time you opened a guy's chest, did you see his heart reflecting a picture of the guy right there on his heart? Because that's what the Bible says. The heart of man reflects man. And imagine if you were the doctor, what would you tell me? You would say, no, dum-dum. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Well, see, the verse isn't literal in the historical narrative sense. It's literal in the poetic sense. Okay, you see, it's not just that we don't take it literally. We take it literally within the genre it's written. Now, with that said, what genre would you say that Genesis is written in? What genre would you say that Genesis is written in? Speaking of the whole book, okay? It contains the stories of talking serpents and such. Would you think it's historical narrative, poetry, prophecy? Is it a, is a letter? You know, what are we reading in Genesis? The problem with Genesis, okay, is it seems to have a few different genres in it. Okay, for, for much of the book, it reads very much like a historical narrative. But in the opening verses of the creation account, it's tough to identify. In that section of scripture that we just read, it's tough to pinpoint, and I'll tell you why. Okay, uh, it's been suggested by numerous biblical scholars that it's written in a style of kind of like a, a play, all right, uh, broken into six, six different acts, and each one punctuated, if you look at the end of verse five, and there was morning, and there was evening, the first day. At the end of verse eight, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And at the end of verse 13, there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. Verse 19, there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. Verse 23, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And then finally, at the end of verse of 31, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. All right? You, you see the peculiar manner in which that's written? Normally, if you're doing a, a historical narrative, you don't introduce repetitive elements like that in your historical narrative. You just tell the story. Has it happened? You don't punctuate it with these Refrains. Where do you have refrain? You have it in song. You have it in music. You have it in poetry. Okay? Again, if you're writing, writing a straight-up historical narrative, you wouldn't punctuate those lines like that. So it suggests almost a poetic style. It gives you enough pause to wonder, perhaps, maybe you're not reading a straight-up historical narrative. 
And the second thing, notice this. What, what did, uh, for those of you that have your Bibles open, what did God create on the first day? Remember, do you have it up there? What did God create on the first day? Light. Light. What did he create on the second day? Sky and the sea. Okay? Sky and the sea. What did he create on the third day? Third day was land and vegetation. Okay? What did he create on the fourth day? Close. Fourth day was source light, the sun, the, the moon, and the, the sun. Okay? What about the fifth day? The sky and the sea dwellers. What did he create on the sixth day? The land and vegetation dwellers. Do you see a, a little bit of a pattern here? Day one balances with day four, the light, sources of light. Day two, sky and the sea, balances with day five, sky and sea dwellers. Land and vegetation, land and vegetation dwellers. And the seventh day he rested. You can look at this. You can look at this and say, and someone can think, ah, there's, there seems to be balance here. There's, there's symmetry here, okay? This is poetry. When you see balance, when you see symmetry, when you see structure, you, again, you don't always think historical narrative. You think it's something else. It's, a, it's poetic. It's a refrain of some kind, right? Poetry makes itself known by its strophic nature, and strophic means repetition. It has refrains, patterns, balance, and parallelism. When you have these elements, you as the reader should immediately be alerted, aha, this is poetry or a song. Okay, see that? It's like each day closed uh, the scene with this refrain. And if that's the case, if, that, if that's how it's been written, perhaps a type of poetry or something dramatic, then what is a day? <laughs> We're not sure. We're not sure. Okay, we're not sure. But uh, we can put it on the record. And let me just say this for the record. That uh, the opening account, again, is, is very hard to identify. You know, because again, we see these repeated refrains and things like that and, and balance. But uh, by the time we get to Genesis 2, by the time we get to Genesis 2, I think we're dealing with straight up historical narrative at that point. I think we're back to historical narrative, okay? So when we read about a, a talking serpent in Genesis 3, I think it, it was a real talking serpent. I think it was a talking serpent. Uh, uh, we don't see form or balance or symmetry or that, that kind of pattern like we see in Genesis 1. We don't see that in Genesis 2, 3, 4, 5, or 6. We do see it break out in a song once in a while, but again, it's clearly identified. And then they sang, there's your song, right? But in Genesis 1, what is it exactly? What do we say for sure? Can't say. So which of these explanations is right? Well, that's for you to determine through your own study. It's a, you're on your own at that point. We really didn't get much information on the how of creation, uh, just like we said when we started when we got in here. Whether we like it or not, we didn't get a lot of information. The Bible just doesn't go into a lot of great detail on this. This is all we've got. You know, this is why we could, we could hold any of these three ideas that, you know, yes, six 24-hour periods, or uh, depending on how you define the day, or this, this uh, poetic um, framework uh, idea. We could hold any of them. They're all still considered high view of Scripture. But what's the non-negotiable part of this account? Who? Creation. Creator. There's a creation, and that means there must be a creator. Okay, that's what we have to agree upon. What's the point of this passage? Why is it in here? Is it for us to really pick apart and figure out, was it six days, or was it, was it really longer than that? What's the point? It, the main point for us to determine uh, it's not whether it was created in, in six hours or, or 24 hours or 144 hours. The main point of the creation account in Genesis 1, what is it here for? Is to answer the how of creation or is it to answer the who of creation? It's to answer the who of creation.
The main point of this account is to show us what? The intentionality of God, that God had intention. There's one thing that this passage communicates to us, and that's the world was created with intentionality. It wasn't a cosmic accident, okay? It wasn't created, it was created with purpose, with design and order and deliberate intention. It wasn't just always there, right? It's not eternal. It came from somewhere. And if it came from, if, if it came from uh, 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 some sort of creation, there has to be a creator. And it came from the mouth of God. That's where it came from. That's what we need to read into this or, or read, take from it, is that God spoke and it was so. God the creator spoke and it was so. It was spoken into existence by the very words of God. And, if there, and here's, here's the payoff here. If the world was put here with purpose and design, do you see what this means? It means you have design and purpose too. You have design and purpose. There's intentionality to the universe. There's an intentionality to why you're here. It gives you purpose. If the universe is here because it's a, it's a giant cosmic accident, there, there's no purpose for you being here, and which is why Sydney's leaving. I'm kidding. <laughs> if the universe is here because of a giant cosmic accident, there's no purpose for being here. It's all an extension of that great cosmic accident. So live as you please. Do whatever you want to do. If we're all here by accident, right? It doesn't matter if you're a minister or a mass murderer. It's just all a cosmic accident. But when you affirm the intentionality of God and the Father and his intention to create the world and everything in it, suddenly everything has a purpose. Everything has a purpose. Okay, if you believe you're not created by design, then there's no way you can ever talk about right or wrong ever. Why? Why? Think about it. There's no such thing as a good person or a bad person. There's no such thing as, as a good anything. You can never judge good or bad apart from the context of purpose. Okay, how do you know if a hammer is good? You know a hammer is good if you can use it for the purpose it was made, to drive nails. How do you know a car is good? If a car doesn't do a good job of making toast for you in the morning, does that make it a bad car? No, because you're not using the car to the purpose to which it was made. You're not using the car to the purpose to which it was designed, okay? You see, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of creation tells us that there is purpose. You were made. You were designed, and because you were designed, you were cast in the image of someone, Okay, this is what gives you and the rest of creation purpose. We're here for a reason, to love God and enjoy him forever. That's what the creation account primarily tells us. Let's, that's, I know that was a lot. That was a lot to take in. And uh, if you have any uh, points that you want clarified or, or any other questions asked, let me know now. Let's, uh, let's open it up for questions or discussion or anything that, that you may have or feedback, comments, anything, both online or in person. What do you think? What's your reaction? What's your immediate reaction? Was that too much? No? Any other comments? Does this make sense? Do you, ha do you have a, uh, a, a decent understanding of, you know what, I'm probably more of a, just an informal poll. Uh, how many of you think you're more of a six-day, 144-hour creation person? Anyone have that? Okay. This one. How about, uh, it depends on how you define the word day. Anyone hold to that one? Now more of that, okay, a few of you. And how many of you would hold to more of the framework view that it's somewhat poetic and therefore, okay, a couple of you there. Anyone online weigh in? No. All right, so we've got a good balance of all of them. And again, both affirmed by scripture and then secondarily by our denomination, 
It says, you know, you can hold on to any of those positions because again, number one, we don't have a lot of information on it, but number two, they're all high views of scripture. They all use scripture to determine their position. So, uh, so again, and again, once again, the primary purpose, it's not necessary to, to fret over the, the how, but again, it allows you to engage in conversations with people. And again, if you, if you have someone that says, you know what, I just can't get past this from a scientific point of view, you can say, you know what? Listen, there's a, there's a scientific possibility that, yeah, the earth is billions of years old. And guess what? It lines up completely with scripture. You know, I think that's what uh, gives us reassurance in the fact that God doesn't tell us everything, but he tells us enough. He tells us enough to know that I can trust what he says. And uh, even if I'm wrong about this, he's still trustworthy and it's not dependent on me to figure it out. So, all right. Anyone else? Any other thoughts or comments or questions? All right. Well, great. Well, thanks for joining me tonight, folks. Thanks for joining me uh, online. Let me close this in prayer real quick. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, once again, we, we thank you for uh, the wonder of your word. We thank you that uh, you haven't given us nothing, but you've given us something, and it's plenty to chew on, it's plenty to contemplate, and it's plenty to, to marvel at. Uh, and we thank you that we get to do that. And uh, though we don't know everything, uh, how it, what it all means all the time, we will one day be able to be in your presence uh, for only now in a mirror we see dimly, but then face to face, Lord, what a wonder that will be. And, and then there'll be nothing left to wonder except uh, just marvel at your, your, your beauty and your, uh, your grace and your mercy and the way you love us. Uh, we thank you for that. Uh, be with us as we uh, go our different ways tonight. Uh, protect us. Uh, be with those uh, uh, that uh, we mentioned earlier today that uh, you would uh, just give them healing and, and, uh, and comfort and wisdom, whatever the case may be. We thank you that you love us. Uh, help us to leave here with that knowledge. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right. Thank you all. Thanks for joining and thanks for joining online. We'll see you next time.